Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. The title of this episode is Barbarians at the Gates and Everywhere Else. I live on the coast of Southern California in one of the most beautiful places on the planet, Ventura County. The weather is temperate all year round with an average temperature of 70 degrees. The beaches are pristine and most of the time uncrowded. The county has several prime surf spots. But every so often, usually during the winter, storms throw up huge waves that trash the shore. Some of these storms are local and wash down huge piles of debris from the hills that then wash up on the beach. Others are far to the south, off the coast of Mexico, but they roll up waves that travel north and erode tons of sand, altering the shoreline. In the 5th and 6th centuries, waves of barbarian invasion from the north and the east swept across Europe to alter the political and cultural landscape and prime Europe for the Middle Ages. When Bishop Augustine of Hippo died in 430, the Vandals were laying siege to his city. While the Council of Chalcedon was meeting in 451, Pope Leo negotiated with the Huns to leave Rome unmolested. European history of the 5th and 6th centuries was dominated by the movement of mostly Germanic peoples into territories of the old Roman Empire. The subsequent displacement and population shifting had a major impact on Christianity in the West. Medieval civilization was a result of this barbarian upheaval coupled with the vestiges of late Roman society and the impact that Augustine had on theology and the practice of the church. The incursion of Germanic tribes into the Roman Empire was just the first of four massive waves of migration. The Germans came in the 5th century. The Vars and the Slavs swept into the Balkans in the 6th, the Muslims in the 7th, and the Vikings in the 8th to the 10th centuries. The resulting societal changes created by these invasive migrations had a monumental effect on the church. We'll take a look now at just the first of these population shifts, the Germanic invasions. The 5th century saw the climax of what was really a long process of mostly controlled immigration by the Germans. They settled land at the empire's frontier and served in the military. In truth, while the Romans referred to the Germans as barbarians, they often preserved the empire by filling gaps in the declining population of Roman lands and by manning the legions. It was the perfect storm that saw things figuratively go south for Rome. Factors combining to generate this perfect storm were, number one, the Germans were pressed by invaders out of Central Asia, two, key treaties between the Romans and the Germans were broken, and third, the warm weather that had seen a population boom in Northern Europe was followed by bitter cold, so that the Germans were forced to move south in search of lands to sustain their larger numbers. It didn't help Rome that the Germans now knew Roman military tactics and bore Roman arms. Note to self, if you don't want your neighbor to take over your house, don't give him the keys and the alarm code. Certain dates in the first half of the 5th century are important. In 410, Alaric, leader of the Western Goths, or Visigoths, sacked the city of Rome. This was an understandably traumatic event for the Western Empire. His successor, Adolf, married the Emperor Anarius' sister. In 430, Augustine attempted to explain Rome's fall to the Visigoths in his classic work, The City of God. He died the year before the Council of Ephesus in the fall of a city, Hippo, in North Africa to the Vandals. In 451, Attila and the Huns from Central Asia swept through Western Europe, then were defeated by an alliance of Romans and Germans led by Aetius. 
In 455, Aetius and the Emperor Valentinian III were assassinated, and the Vandals under Gaiseric again sacked Rome. The first contact the Romans had with the Goths came during the reign of the Emperor Decius. During Constantine's reign, they became allies and often entered the legions at an elevated rank. The Visigoths were being pressured from the east by the Huns, and in 376 sought refuge on the Roman side of the Danube. The Emperor Valens granted their request, and there began a mass conversion of Goths to Arianism. Due to mistreatment by Roman governors, they revolted in 378 and killed the Emperor Valens in the famous Battle of Adrianople. Thus began the real Germanic invasions of the empire. By 419, the Visigoths had subdued southern Gaul and all of Spain. As we've noted in previous episodes, when the Goths invaded the Western Empire in the 5th century, for the most part, they came not as pillaging pagans, but as Arian Christians. A Goth bishop named Theophilus had attended the Council of Nicaea in 325. The missionary who carried the gospel to the Goths was Uphilus in the mid to late 4th century. Uphilus had amazing success in seeing the Germans won to faith for two reasons. First of all, their native religion was in decline, Simply put, their gods seemed rather old and shabby. And second, the many German tribes shared a common language. Realizing translating the Bible into German was a key to successful evangelism, Ophelus spent considerable time on the project before his death. He left the books of Samuel and Kings out of his translation because he figured that the Goths, well, they already knew enough about warfare. In 406, when Rome recalled the legions from the Rhine to protect Italy, another Germanic tribe called the Vandals poured into Gaul, then southwest into Spain, and eventually jumped the Strait of Gibraltar to harass North Africa. Their King Gaiseric led them to Carthage, which he conquered in 439, and made the capital of an Aryan Vandal kingdom. Gaiseric was intolerant of other forms of the faith. In 455, he sent ships across the Mediterranean to sack Rome. At first, the Donatists in North Africa rejoiced at the coming of the Vandals. Remember, they'd been labeled heretics by Rome, but it didn't take long for them to realize that the enemy of my enemy isn't always my friend. The Vandals were not friendly. So in 484, a Donatist Catholic synod met to try to patch up their theological differences. Catholics were persecuted under some of the Vandal kings in the late 5th century and into the early 6th. It was this persecution that gave the Vandals a bad name, far more than any acts of actual vandalism. Really, the Vandals were no more barbaric than other Germans. Justinian's famous general, Belisarius, repulsed the Vandals and reoccupied North Africa for the Byzantine Empire in 534. The Visigoths and Vandals were followed up by the Suvians, the Burgundians, and the Franks. The Franks were the least mobile of the Germanic tribes. They settled in North France and expanded their rule from there. They joined several other Roman tribes along with the Romans to stave off the common threat of the Huns in 451. Of all the German tribes, the Franks were the least inclined to heed the work of Christian missions. They seemed immune to conversion until their king Clovis in the mid-5th century. Clovis's conversion to the faith was a significant moment in the history of Europe. Since the Vandals, Goths, and Burgundians were Arian, it seemed likely that Arianism would take over the West. Alone of the Germanic kingdoms, the Franks under Clovis embraced what we know as Catholic or Nicene Christianity, the majority faith of his European subjects. In 492, Bishop Avitus of Vienna 
arranged the marriage of a Burgundian princess named Clotilda to Clovis. Clotilda was a committed Christian of the Nicene brand. The royal couple had a son, who was baptized, but died while still in his baptismal robes. Clovis, who at that point was still a pagan, loudly declared that his gods would not allow such a thing to happen. Later, they had another son. This one thrived. Then, in battle with the Alemanni and things not going in his favor, the desperate Clovis asked for the aid of the Christian god. The battle turned in his favor. When the Alemanni were defeated, Clovis submitted to baptism. Bishop Remigius of Reims performed the rite on Christmas Day of 496. The source for all of this is a work by Gregory of Tours titled History of the Franks. The book gave the Franks their identity and shaped their understanding of the future that they were to have in forging European history. Following his baptism, Clovis was anointed in his role as monarch. This anointing of the king by a bishop became a custom among the Franks. The resulting aura of sacred Christian kingship seemed to justify Frankish control of the church. Sadly, Clovis's character remained little changed by his official acceptance of Christianity. It seems that he adopted the religion as a matter of political expediency, but he didn't really receive the gospel. In 493, Odoacer, the German general who'd forced the abdication of the last Western Roman emperor a little less than 20 years before, was killed by the Eastern or the Ostrogothic king Theodoric. Next to Clovis, Theodoric was the most important ruler of the barbarian kingdoms. Theodoric made Ravenna in Italy his capital. He was an Arian who adopted Byzantine culture. Though he was personally tolerant, his Nicene Catholic subjects weren't so much. His rule saw the last flowering of late Roman culture in the West. The Ostrogothic kingdom continued until 553 when the Eastern general Belisarius retook much of Italy for the Byzantine Empire. The cultural revival that occurred during the first half of the 6th century has been called the Indian Summer of Christian Antiquity. This period saw a number of influential persons who laid the foundation of early medieval society. Boethius was from a leading Roman family who became a philosopher and statesman in the court of Theodoric. Although loyal, Boethius came under suspicion, and Theodoric had him imprisoned and executed. While in prison, Boethius wrote his most famous work, The Consolation of Philosophy. This work is important because it marks the transition from the Church Fathers, or what's called Patristics, to the Scholastics, who we'll talk about more later. Through his translations, Boethius handed to the Middle Ages the ethics and logic of Aristotle. The Scholastics regarded Boethius as the greatest authority in philosophy after Aristotle. Dionysus Exegus was a Central Asian who came to Rome toward the end of the 5th century. He collected and translated the canons of the Eastern Church into Latin. He also collected the canons and papal decrees of the Western Church. His work bore tremendous ecclesiastical authority. But Dionysus had a much wider significance in that he introduced a system of dating based on the Christian era, beginning with the Incarnation of Christ. He's the one who came up with the whole B.C. and A.D. markers to divide time. Until that time, the secular method of charting the date was determined by the rule of the councils of Rome and the empire of Diocletian. Unfortunately, Dionysus miscalculated the date of Jesus' birth so that, according to contemporary reckoning, Jesus was born at least 4 B.C. 
This is also the time of Gregory the Great, who we'll devote an entire episode to soon. Last in the chronicle that we'll include in this list of barbarian invasions is the Lombards. In 568, this Germanic tribe broke through the northern bounds of Justinian's empire and entered Italy. Gregory the Great turned them back in 593 and secured peace by dividing Italy between Lombard and imperial lands. The Lombards were a factious lot and ruled from three centers. The kingdom at Parvia in the north threatened the imperial capital at Ravenna. The duchies of Spoleto and Benevento in central Italy were a danger to Rome and Naples. The Lombards were Arian in their faith. Their acceptance of Catholic Christianity didn't come until the 7th century. As we wrap up this episode, let's take a look at the effect of the barbarian invasions. Augustine wasn't the only one who attempted a literary response to the Germanic invasions. While the sack of Rome in 410 seemed to many an end of the ages, Orosius wrote seven volumes against the pagans to show that the pre-Christian world suffered no less than the present. The work became a kind of manual for understanding history in the Middle Ages. Orosius gave a central place to the Roman Empire in God's plan. His history placed on the Western mind the idea of the divine role of Roman civilization. Jerome had already interpreted the fourth kingdom of the book of Daniel as Rome and concluded that it was to continue as long as the church did. Orosius promoted the view that both the Hebrews and the Romans played an important part in the salvation of the world. Salvian's work, which was titled On the Divine Government in 440, promoted the historical significance of the Germans. He exaggerated their good characteristics as set over against Roman corruption. He said that God used the Germans as the sword of judgment on a wicked Rome. Three attitudes prevailed in Europe regarding the barbarian invasions. Augustine held that ultimately political success or failure make no difference. His focus was on the world to come. In contrast, Orosius said Christianity was the guarantor of the empire's prosperity. Salvian claimed the empire was being punished for its sins. But an interesting thing happened once the German invaders settled down in the old Roman lands. By and large, they shed either their Arian-flavored faith for Nicene Catholic Christianity, and they adopted the Roman culture, or at least what was left of it. Over a couple of generations, they came to identify themselves as Romans rather than as Goths, Franks, Burgundians, and Lombards. But even with these adaptions to Roman culture, the old Roman and the new Germanic peoples were divided by language. The Romans spoke Latin, the Germans Goth. Customs of food and dress carried on in many places with the Latins wearing togas while the Germans wore trousers. Their legal system differed and laws were applied to the different classes in the same kingdom. It took centuries for the two peoples to blend and become the nations of modern Europe. Greco-Roman civilization was based on cities. The Germanic invasions brought a decline to cities. A rural economy developed in the West, accelerating the move to what we've come to associate so centrally with the Middle Ages, feudalism. While in the East, cities remained the main fixture of social organization, in the West, it was landed estates that rose to prominence. Rulers relied on their own lands, and so there was a decentralization of government. With a decline in centralized government in the West, the church took over many of the services once provided by the state, things like education. Churches and monasteries were bound to the agricultural economy of the West and profited by a close relationship with local rulers. 
But one thing that saw the importance and influence of the church grow substantially at this time was the fracturing that occurred in the political realm. When Western Europe was divided up into hundreds of smaller regions, each with its own ruler, the universal authority of the church under Rome and the regional bishops provided a continuity that was desperately needed. No secular authority in the West was able to control the church as an organ of state to the same extent as the Eastern emperors. So in the West, rather than kings ruling in church affairs, it was the church that increasingly played a role in political affairs. Once again, I want to say thanks to all those that have gone to the Community of Sanctorum Facebook page and given us a like. The comments there have been a blessing. I especially want to say thanks to those that have given the podcast a good review on iTunes. iTunes is the main portal for podcasts, and positive reviews go a long way in helping to promote Communio Sanctorum. I don't often mention it, but I do occasionally need to remind you that if you'd like to make a donation to keep Communio Sanctorum online, you can use the donate feature on the website. Just go to sanctorum.us. That's S-A-N-C-T-O-R-U-M dot U-S. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.